0: Hi, this is Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show, where we talk about and celebrate workplace visuality, letting the workplace speak. Welcome. Thank you so much for taking time in your busy day to tune in. I'm really glad you joined us. You know, in each of our shows, we look at some aspect of how visuality allows us to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems, we install the details of our current level of enterprise excellence, even if we're not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be. And that's whether we work in a factory, a hospital, office, open pit mine, it doesn't matter. Work is a world of information, and we make that information visual through workplace visuality. And why do we do it? For the stunning bottom line improvements in safety, cost, quality, productivity, on-time delivery, and for the cultural alignment, splendid, spirited, and engaged. All the workforce learns how to speak visually, and we also do it to enjoy ourselves along the way and to enjoy ourselves at work. We enjoy ourselves at work. We flow. And to that, I say, oh, wonderful. So, welcome. Welcome. So, before we begin today's show, I want to remind you to send your comments, your photos, which would be wonderful, your stories, and your questions to radio at visualworkplace.com. Visit us on our website, visualworkplace.com. Okay? Send your questions, radio at visualworkplace.com. Did I say that? Radio at visualworkplace.com. And visit us at our website, www.visualworkplace.com. Thanks. Okay, good. (laughs) So today, today we're going to continue our examination of the 10 doorways, the organizing framework for creating a workforce of visual thinkers. Remember the concept. Each of the 10 doorways represents a category of visual function. That's a fancy way of saying a methodology that creates a knowable, predictable outcome. A category of visual function, visual standards, the visual wear, visual metrics, visual leadership, visual pull systems, and on and on. And each of these functions is owned by an organizational group. That group owns the doorway, a group of engineers and or managers and or operators and or executives, for example. I'm going to walk you through the 10 doorways as, by way of reminder in just a moment, but get the concept. When I say that this or that specific group owns a given doorway, that means the work they do and the outcomes that they're responsible for are greatly enhanced. They're clarified and supported by the visual methodology of that doorway. Not only that. But if that specific group does not make its work visual, others in the company will struggle. They'll struggle to understand. They'll struggle to understand what is expected of that group or what is expected of them. They'll struggle to perform. They'll struggle to understand. They'll struggle to contribute. Okay? This is an information-based improvement strategy. We are transforming information into information that lives in the workplace through visual devices and visual systems. And each organizational group has a part of that, and I call that a doorway. But that doesn't mean that if your organizational function is not assigned to a given doorway, you shouldn't or couldn't contribute to it. In most cases, you certainly should and could and will For example, visual metrics belongs to doorway number four, the executive doorway, and by association managers and supervisors. In a visual enterprise, ranking-side executives set the measures. They decide what they're going to measure and the levels that are acceptable. That's part of their job. That's part of leadership or executive leadership's job. We hold them accountable for those metrics but you know what? And for selecting them as well. But many, many others participate. Other groups will comment on the metrics. They will certainly contribute to the metrics. We usually start with KPIs, key performance indicators, and then later on as we mature and our understanding of how these things work, we create metrics that drive, which are really, really important. But whatever the combination, sorry, whatever the contribution of others, when push comes to shove, the executive, the plant manager, the GM, the CEO is responsible for selecting and using those metrics. Okay? So others participate, but the executive owns it. It's his or her responsibility. And that's on the corporate level as well. So you see? So, let's walk through those 10 doorways, and then we'll start our deep dive into doorway number one, the visual wear. And let's talk about doorway number one. The outcome is the visual where. That's the category of visual function that is put into place in doorway number one, the where, known, seen, experienced visually. The owners, value-add associates, operators, line Employees, And that includes in offices as well. They're responsible for implementing the visual wear. On the shop floor, it's going to be borders, addresses, and if possible, an ID label for everything that casts a shadow. That's the formula. That's the formula we use. (laughs) And they will need that visual information to perform their work, to get the outcomes they want and that they are held accountable for. For the time being, you can think of this doorway, doorway number one, as the 5S doorway. But over the course of the next several shows and really beginning in this show, I hope to persuade you to think of doorway number one in a different way, in a fuller way, so that you can kind of grab its potential. There's a lot that is possible in doorway number one. And um, it's going to be my job to persuade you to be interested in that. I hope that you are. So that's doorway number one, the visual where, think of it as 5S. Doorway number two, the outcome, is visual standards. And this doorway is owned by engineers and managers and supervisors. Why? Because engineers, managers, and supervisors are responsible for identifying, capturing, and publishing, if you will, distributing accurate, complete, and timely standards. In Doorway 2, we're in Doorway 2 now, they also make them visual. And as you will later find out, visual standards are the least powerful of all categories of visual function, but they are indispensable. Nonetheless, you need to document. They are not powerful because they merely tell us what the right specs are, and the correct SOPs, standard operating procedures, methods for achieving those specs. They simply tell us what they are. They do not make us do them. Therefore, we say they are not powerful. Powerful visual devices, as you will, either as you know or as you will learn, make us make us do. But Visual standards simply tell us. Okay? We'll save that discussion, very interesting discussion, for later. So those groups, engineers, supervisors, managers, own that doorway. But of course, it doesn't mean that others cannot contribute or even invent visual standards. Operators, for example, have a huge contribution to make in capturing complete, accurate, and timely standards, but they are not held accountable for documenting them and making them visual managers, engineers, and supervisors are. In my model, this is the way it works. And we want that kind of differentiation because the ownership means the job will get done. Doorway number three, our third doorway, is owned by planners, supervisors, and managers. Yes, the same supervisors and managers we mentioned a moment ago. The category of visual outcome the category of visual function is visual displays, visual scheduling boards, production control boards, and oh, wonderful. These are wonderful, wonderful visual formats, and I can hardly wait to discuss those with you. And that's going to take us a number of shows because we're going to focus on doorway one first. But doorway three is incredible, and it will lead you to Obey Rooms and even the more advanced form, which is a war room where you're really driving outcomes. Not just knowing the outcomes, but driving them. This is a wonderful doorway. Wonderful. I want to say so much more about it right now, but I'm going to resist. <laughs> We've got plenty of plenty to do today. Doorway number four, owned by executives. I've mentioned that before. And by associ by association also managers Managers and supervisors, my, my, my aren't managers and supervisors very busy (laughs) in a visual workplace. Well, only if they're not visual. (laughs) The domain is visual metrics and KPIs and visual problem solving. And I'm sure you see the connection between metrics and making those metrics better through problem solving. That is visual. And then the entire realm of leadership, that is also visual, Hoshin. The X-type matrix, your operations roadmap, your temple, your house of, whatever it is. Splendid visual information sharing, evocative, inspiring, transformative. That's doorway number four. It's very, very, very important. Equally as important as all the other doorways, especially if you own that doorway, Dory number five targets visual controls and visual pull systems. Visual control, the visual control, tracking and consumption of material. Happily owned and perfected by supervisors, planners, engineers, and material handlers. We see visual subfunctions such as Kanban, Andon, Hijunko. Wonderful, wonderful. That's Dory five. Just a scan. Delway 6 is owned by a quality department, quality engineers, and quality technicians. The category of visual function that becomes their possession, um, I beg your pardon, their obsession. I'm going to say that again because it's important. The category of visual function that becomes their obsession is visual guarantees, mistake-proofing Pokyok systems. This is the doorway to perfect quality. So much to be said about that. I'll probably invite Martin Hinckley to join me. He and I have co-authored a very, very excellent uh, training module, available online, by the way, of Pokyok Systems. It's called Mistake Proofing. Okay, so those six doorways that I just named, I call them the six core doorways because in doorway number seven, We apply all six of them to the machine. We make the machine speak through the visual wear, through visual standards, through visual metrics, through visual pull systems and visual displays. All six of them are now applied to a new venue, Dory number seven, the machine, and owned by your maintenance department, of course, with tons and tons of help from operators and also from your material stores. Okay, makes sense, right? your tool shop as well, of course. Doorway number eight is another venue to which we apply the six core or the first six doorways, and that is the office. We call it the visual lean office. Well, of course, nearly 70% of all costs begin in company offices and support areas. Doorway eight helps office staff, support staff, to make their area speak so that everyone working there can tell at a glance what's right, what's wrong, what's fast, what's slow, what needs to be corrected, etc. Visually, they make the office speak. Doorway nine, this is a special group. I call it the macro team. And it is created, this group is pulled together as soon as you open any of the other doorways within two months. Why? Because they are in charge of the macro-visual environment. They're made up of, this team is made up of ACE visual thinkers who pay attention to the big pictures. That means they identify the need for visual linkages between departments and they pinpoint visual best practices in the making and they make sure that gets populated. It's one of the weaknesses. Let's say it's one of the challenges of operational excellence and that journey. If you do not have a system for populating solutions, you're just going to be solving the same old problems again and again and again, and it will just eat your heart out because you solved it before, but you don't have a system for populating solutions. So that's part of the job of doorway number nine. And doorway number 10, kind of a culmination. I really love this doorway. We really have a chance to um, put it into its full action. Because it's a comprehensive process for visually linking not just the departments, but departments across many or multiple sites. So that the enterprise, even if it has 50 hospitals in it, or 400 plants the way Delphi used to, the entire enterprise is speaking the same visual language. And then you go up and down the supply chain as well. Wonderful, wonderful. So those are the 10 doorways. took a little while, but I need to remind you that this is a model that is really uh, so that every person and every function in the organization has the opportunity, has the potential of speaking visually and making the visual contribution. You'll find an image of the 10 doorways on our website, visualworkplace.com. It's under... In the drop-down, it's under our approach, and it talks about the 10-doorway model. And there's a couple of more concepts I want to hit before I move on to doorway number one. The doorways do not necessarily get opened in order. In fact, never, never. Although doorway number one is often, I would say 99% of the time, the door where we opened first because there's tremendous weakness there and a great deal of misunderstanding and cultural mishmash that has to be corrected. But, you know, you don't have to begin there. In the exception, for example, a company was hemorrhaging from defects and they wanted to open doorway number six right away, the Pokey doorway, to reduce their defects by 80% or eliminate them completely through the visual methodology called Pokey Oak or Visual Guarantees. But if you're in great need of stability in operations and improved productivity on the value-add level or if your <laughs> operators just really hate coming to work because they can't find what they need when they need it and they keep getting blamed or frustrated or struggling, well, then you need to begin with Dory number one, the visual wear. Or if you have badly messed up 5S, Start with the visual where our methodology called work that makes sense, and you can kind of forgive all of the indiscretions and failures of the past and begin with a kind of refreshed, wonderfully uh, refreshed way of bringing operators on board. They will love it. They will love it. It's a real remedy. (laughs) It's like a cure, miracle cure. Okay? So operators open Doorway number one, and they walk through it. They learn about and implement visual order, the visual wear, an elevated form of 5S. The visual wear will certainly not cure all your productivity woes, but it sure will make it clear that there are plenty of problems that you need to address in scheduling machine availability that impact operational productivity and that your operators cannot address because they have addressed what really will help them visually, the visual wear. That is the single most important question when you're on the value-add level. And it's the one that in its, in the absence of a visual answer can just bring you to your knees and really make you question the meaning of your life. <gasps> oh, my God, I can't even find my tools. How can I get my work done? I can't find the material. The material is wrong. Ugh. It's a heartbreaker. So let's... so. That doorway opens, and that's the one we're going to open right now. So I just want to say, the 10 doorways are a model, a roadmap, that is used both to assess and to plan an organizing framework to make sure that each level of the organization is making its contribution, is developing a visual vocabulary for getting its need to know and its need to share visually embedded into the physical living landscape of work, everyone—managers, associates, CEOs, operators, engineers, doctors, supervisors, the purchasing department, nurses, the doc. Oh, um, by that I meant the <laughs> the loading doc. <laughs> dock, D O C K. Emergency room, material handling, the legal department, everywhere, everywhere. The point is, we want to create a workforce of visual thinkers so that every person can learn how to think visually and discover the form of motion that is eating their lunch and solve that motion through solutions that are visual. That's our definition. Visual thinking is our ability, your ability in mind, to recognize motion, the footprint of the enemy. And to recognize, to find the enemy itself, which is information deficits that trigger that motion, and then to eliminate both through solutions that are visual. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So the 10 doorways demonstrate that each of us can learn to minimize and eliminate those information deficits, no matter the organization, no matter the cause. So doorway number one, let's circle back. And begin our examination of doorway number one. This will take several shows. you know, probably four, five, even six. Please send in your questions if I'm missing anything or you want me to take a deep dive into some part of doorway number one that I have overlooked or haven't done a thorough job on, just send me an email. I promise to include it. I'm very interested in responding to your need to know, okay, and my need to share. This doorway is about the visual wear. Those are my words for 5S, the visual wear. And I'm going to tell you a little bit today and a little bit more over our time together over these many months and perhaps years. Lots of things that I've discovered, lots of mistakes that I've made, and lots of changes that I've brought And one of them was to 5S. It's a very, this is a very, very rich doorway. And what I want to do is describe what is possible. And then you can decide if you want to follow that direction or if it speaks to some of the challenges that you're facing. We're going to need to talk about 5S and its origins in Japan and why it works so well in Japan we're going to talk about what happened when 5S came to our shores in the West, what worked and what did not, and why. We'll touch upon a little bit of that today. We'll have to talk about audits, the 5S audit, what works, not much, I'm sorry, and what, uh, what doesn't work and why. We'll talk about the true functionality of those, line, those things that most people call lines and labels that I call Borders and Addresses, and I'll tell you why I call them. And I'll also talk to you about color code systems. And I will also have the great pleasure of sharing with you the 19 types of borders. I, like many people, thought there were only two, aisle borders and framing borders. But in fact, over the last 35 years, the wonderful operators that I've had the privilege and honor to work with have invented all kinds of categories of border function i count 19 of them oh would there would be 20 <laughs> but right now there's 19 that i can name and i'll walk you through that we're going to talk about in doorway number 1 because we have to the nature of resistance on the value add level and what inertia is and engagement I will also share with you a few hard and fast don'ts and a few hard and fast do's. But mostly what I'd like to share with you is the value system that governs the way that w- that I and our affiliates Implement 5s and why we're so successful, and what things we like to avoid, and and what things that we hold very fast, close to our hearts. There's a set of principles, behavioral principles and process principles, that we will share with you. We are in for an exciting, and I hope very informative ride. Several shows, of course, and remember, if you need more or different, email me at radio@visualworkplace.com at and I will do my best to provide it. Okay, doorway number one, wholly owned by value-add associates. Supervisors, hands off. Trust these people. They are adults. (laughs) The first level of the doorway is about visual order. Okay? The process, I mean, you could call it 5S way back when in the 1990s, I called it 5S plus 1, Visual order, that morphed into the visual wear and eventually became operator-led visuality work that makes sense. That's my big yellow book. And it's a wonderful book because the discoveries that led to that book were wonderful as well. Eye-opening, heart-stopping. Oh, boy. So, I'm going to make some declarative statements. I am not meaning to step on your toes, but... You may feel a small ouch. I apologize in advance. I just kind of want to get some things into place. So I'm going to say a few things declaratively. One of the things is I want to declare or to invite you (laughs) not to confuse visual order with industrial housekeeping or with workplace organization. Okay? Okay. And don't confuse 5S plus 1, my old form or work that makes sense, with 5S, 6S, 4D. They are different. The differences are both in content and knowledge and approach, how to apply that content, know-how. I don't mean to suggest that the system that I favor, the one that I've developed, is superior to all others. I am not selling you on this But I am going to share my experience, and it has been full and riveting. The way that I and, again, our affiliates around the world approach 5S has some core elements that are distinctive from other approaches. And based on the results of dozens of successful, probably hundreds by now, of successful implementations, these changes, these edits produce highly effective, sustainable outcomes across a range of settings. Like you, I have seen many, many companies try to keep afloat a 5S approach that is, for example, not well-constructed or not well-thought-out or perhaps well-thought-out but not well-implemented. We've seen the logic of some 5Ss has made people feel Like they were being treated like children and chided, hounded by weekly and monthly audits instead of inspired by them. People have been asked to follow, for example, a light, uh, a set of, of, of rules, I call them lightweight rules, but as though their lives depended on them or their jobs. And so they would ask themselves in the quiet of their hearts, they would say, Huh? Is, is that all there is? Is that all this is about? This All this hubbub around 5S is to make it clean and keep it clean, and for heaven's sakes, I tell my children that. Now I know why they push back. This is so boring. In the quiet of our hearts, we may speak very frankly. Most of the time it can be more, and it should be, and it can be in many, many companies. 5S has become more, much more. It has become glorious and exciting, full of learning and insight and ownership and inventiveness. And we say, not why not everywhere? So we're going to start by looking at the Japanese approach. And over the next three, four, five shows, I hope to share with you what I've discovered. Okay? And I also, I've made a plan that during... My next show, the one following this one, I will have several very strong suggestions about making some small edits that will help if you're having some challenges around your westernized version of Japan's 5S, will make that more palatable, maybe even exciting, and more successful. Please understand, any challenges that you've encountered or are encountering, are encountering, with Japanese 5S is not your fault, and it's not the fault of the Japanese either. I want to make that very clear. My take on 5S in Japan and 5S in the West is not meant as a criticism. I praise the fortitude, the diligence, sincerity, and creativity of these efforts. Many have been successfully implemented, exceptionally so, perhaps yours. Many have provided tremendous financial benefit and cultural benefit. Okay, so I'm just simply sharing. I think it's very interesting to observe and comment on what happened across the nearly three hands-on decades that 5S came here. And as interesting to note Why 5S has not been universally successful? Because it has been universally successful in Japan. Mm -hmm. Why has it only failed in some companies or even become a detrimental force in some companies, but not all of them? No company has ever launched 5S with failure in mind. Some companies that have experienced failure or great failure remain puzzled as to what happened and why. People are shocked and disappointed or, or turned off. This was supposed to work. So you may think, if it's you, you may think you did something wrong. You did not. You just have to shift the model. There were pieces that were not completely understood and a fit that wasn't elegantly made. Most of this is correctable. Really, it is. I'm more interested in resurrecting your 5S than I am in claiming, because this is not my way. Oh, mine is so much better, you should have done it my way. Rubbish. Let's look at the Japanese model. <laughs> I'm laughing because I, I don't know why. Why? we think we're like the Japanese and what they're successful at, we're going to be successful at because they're the masters at copying. We are not. We are always leaving our thumbprints on somebody else's work. <laughs> we are not masterful mimickers. The Japanese are very, very meticulous. So let me just begin like this. There are problems in the Japanese model for Western companies. Okay, okay. I'm just going to say that. Toyota was one of the several companies in Japan to create or, if you will, adopt 5S early on. These are the 1950s or 5S-like principles and practices. At Toyota, if you go back to the kind of history or story of Taiichi Ono, who was co-architect with Shio Shingo of the Toyota production system, His main concern was safety. That's why I never asked him this question because there were other things being discussed at the time. But my understanding of the people closest to him, including Shigeo Shingo, who was my sensei for about seven or eight years in the 1980s, is that what Ono wanted was a safer workplace because he saw when people were feeling unsafe, they were distracted. Distracted from doing their work and doing it well. A cluttered, dirty, and disorganized work environment is physically unsafe, and Ono noticed it. And so he began his 5S, and he began it for safety reasons. And then that developed into what does that safety look like in terms of other practices and other behaviors. And as Toyota and other companies saw it, 5S would add to the bottom line by reducing accidents and risks as cost drivers and allow people to simply do their work. In Japan, operators undertake 5S as part of their daily work. You may know all of this. Forgive me if um, this is not scintillating. You know, it's just kind of ordinary knowledge. But 5S is not optional. It's not really trained. You do it like mother's milk from the first day that you're there. Interesting, 5S is also an easy and tight fit between Japan's societal values. That means how folks in Japan were raised and how they raised their own family. 5S fit. Here's a few stories or little anecdotes about it. And I also want to say that companies in Japan put a reward and recognition overlay on 5S activities. But in Japan, 5S is very routine and it's also fun. This emotional outcome or this emotional overlay is very important to the Japan approach, Japanese approach to 5S From their earliest days, this is one of the reasons why 5S works. Japanese children are taught that human fulfillment comes from close association with others. I mean, it's a very, very small archipelago. Those islands are small. The homes are small. It's overcrowded. Interdependency is part of the physical uh, element of being in, in Japan. And an interdependent society came out of that first, the family, later that's extended to the neighborhood, to the school, to the playground, the community, and to the company. Dependence on others is a natural part of the Japanese social, may I say, psyche. There's a really lovely Japanese proverb that goes, a single arrow is easily broken, but not ten in a bundle. And there's another one that I like so much that is individually we are but one drop. Together we are the ocean. you get the flavor of that? It means that we're working together doing 5S and when we do 5S, it fosters a sense of doing something together, of higher purpose, of beauty, strength, service, contribution, this emotional feeling, if you will, the values of the society. There's a famous Japanese image It's called the four friends and it shows at the bottom an elephant and standing on top of the elephant is a monkey and standing on top of the monkey is a rabbit and sitting on the rabbit's head is a bird. The four friends, elephant, monkey, rabbit, bird. And they collaborate. They collaborate to plant a tree, to protect it, to harvest the fruits. This is a very famous image in Japan. It is a core value. Of working together, friendship, cooperation, good relations, without, in this sense, considering strength, power, size, competitiveness. I just named, with perhaps the exception of strength, the values in our US society where I live in the west we have our own powerful values set but it isn't it isn't captured in the four friends or i am a drop when i am alone but together we're the ocean this is not these are not values that speak deeply to the american or the us i should say psyche perhaps even the western psyche Another thing about Japan is that Japan is ruled base. Hierarchy is accepted as natural. Japanese companies, for example, as rules go, use audits extensively to check that the rules have been followed and also to reward perfect scores because, you know what? Perfection is highly prized Not winning. Think about that. Perfection is prized. Not winning. You know, we often try to minimize the differences between our society and, for example, Japan. But they're there. Americans often act to minimize status differences in order to level the playing field, for example, so that we all feel equal. We feel that we have an equal chance. We have equal access. But it's not that way in Japan. Let me go out on a limb and say some things, and maybe I will get a bunch of emails saying, oh, Gwendolyn, what are you talking about? But in Japan people find it awkward even in a sense unbecoming when a person doesn't behave in accordance with status expectations. The expectations of their band, their societal band. You know, for me, in the back of my mind, I really make an equation about most of Asia and a kind of caste system that exists. But in Japan, this was refined to the extent that the society worked because people understood what was expected of them based on their societal band. It became Japanese society formulated and governed by these rules, this love of rules. Jeepers, I hope that I don't sound as though I'm diminishing Japan's societal choices and values set. I don't, but they are foreign to me. They don't sit comfortably for me. I'm this kind of maverick American. I, I take pride in being different. I don't play well with others and other attributes that my friends indulge because they're my friends, but they also have to put up with it as well. I like being an American, and I like this feeling of difference. That's me. And, you know, I have to study myself as being a member of this U.S. society, warts and all. So, in Japan, using audits to check 5S, if I can get back to <laughs> the topic at hand, it ensures that the 5S rules are followed, and then that gets rewarded for those who do it perfectly. The audit has that emotional component. Audit is structure. And there is great value put, an aesthetic put on the harmony of form. The audit reflects a high value in Japanese society that is If not built on perfection, then values perfection. So the audit becomes an extension of those higher values. Easy to put into place, natural. Of course, you're going to audit me. I want you to. Ooh, it feels so good. Oh, I, I got a perfect score. Let me do it again. Let me show you I can keep doing it again. I'm not saying, again, that the West doesn't value those things, but it's not a perfect fit. There are other things that drive us. This deeply embedded love pursuit of perfection motivates the Japanese workforce to score and score high on 5S audits and like it, enjoy it. The pursuit of perfection, 5S perfection, has risen to Olympic-like status (laughs) just as the Japanese athletes excel in pursuit of the precision and the strength needed to win Olympic medals. That's for real. It's not about the competition. It's not about winning. It's the pursuit of perfection. And I posit, this is me opining my opinion, I posit that that's what drives the 5S audit and what makes it easier, in fact, easy in Japan, for audits to be the rule and the standard by which by which 5S is conducted and the standard by which 5S is enough. And here's something else. I'll talk about this maybe a little bit more next time. 5S is one amongst many interventions or approaches for getting operators involved in the journey of operational excellence. It isn't the only thing. It is one of several. But I, I want to bring bring us back to this idea of pursuing perfection and talk about baseball. I'm sure you've heard of it. Japan is the only place on the planet where a game of baseball can and almost always ends in a tie. It is important for the baseball game to not be won. <laughs> If it is not a draw, if it is a defeat instead, the game still ends in a bow. Only the depth of the bow is lower for the so-called losers. It doesn't quite work that way in the West where an entirely different set of societal goals rule. I'll say them again. Status, winning, specialness, competitiveness, coming out on top. The prize better be more than a tiny little trophy or a handshake or, as in the case of some Japanese uh, wins, a happy face sticker. It better be more than that. (laughs) So it's different. It's different. I want to recommend to you a book that I love so much. And it is a book that's written by Ruth Benedict. And it was written... um, About 1941, I think it was 41. It's called the Chrysanthemum and the Rose, and it was Ruth Benedict was a um, anthropologist. She did a lot of studies of 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 societies that had not been articulated before. When the World War when World War Two happened, Pearl Harbor the U.S. government enlisted or hired Ruth Benedict, Miss Benedict, to study the Japanese. But, of course, she couldn't study the Japanese in Japan because Japan was our enemy. And so instead, she went to the war camps and interviewed folks who were in those camps, Japanese natives, and she read... And she put together the story that became the chrysanthemum and the sword. Now, to, our, to my horror, when I read, read the book and read the preface, I read, as you will read if you are interested in this fascinating book, that the U.S. government said, we don't understand the Japanese since we are going to conquer them we will win this war. We better figure out how to rule them. And that was the motivating factor for why Ms. Benedict did this research. And she found out many interesting things. If the book were a little bit closer to me, I would grab it now and turn to a certain page and read this to you. But what she is describing, and this is pre-World War II Japan... That the, that the society had very strict bans and very strict rules and a very strict approach to governance that was illustrated in so many fascinating ways. Let me recommend that book to you. I think it reads like the best detective novel yet. It is a journey of revelation and understanding. I think it's important if you're implementing 5S, and there are very few companies that haven't already walked through that doorway, that you read that book and you understand how rich the society is that gave rise to 5S. This is an admirable form, and it fits, and it's successful in Japan. But I spent... The first 10 years of my career in this profession, 1983 until about 1991 or two, trying to make 5S work, and I was right there with all the Japanese masters. I was very privileged to be an early member of a company, I think I told you before, Productivity Inc., Norman Bodex company, and we were the premier source. For knowledge and know-how coming out of Japan, not just in books, but the practitioners, Nakajima, Iwata, Iwata for heaven's sakes, um, Fukuda, Shingo, Harada, um, Yamada, who did amazing work with Delphi we we were with these practitioners we were with them in factories we saw them work we understood we began to understand the um, simplicity and the complexity of this knowledge base of this this paradigm and i worked with 5s and i couldn't get the darn thing i'm sorry i often used to say the damn thing the darn thing to roll over i would push my 5s in place And it would never become a second cycle. If I took my thumb off of it, it didn't roll over. It it did not have a life of its own. And it, it not only puzzled me, but it actually caused me to leave productivity because I couldn't solve it. My boss, the great Norman Bodek said, keep going, Gwenny, you're making me millions. I love it. I had developed a methodology around the Japanese 5S and Japanese this and Japanese that. He said, Gwenny, just stay on the road and, you know, keep flying out and keep bringing me back buckets of money. God bless him. What an entrepreneur he was. Magic, magic, uh, Midas touch. But I knew I was failing and I knew I wasn't helping these American companies. They weren't getting the benefit. They were getting smacked in the face by a form that didn't work for them. And and this is why Doorway One exists. We could just plug in 5S and say Doorway Number One is about 5S, but, man, I will tell you, 5S is not going to work for most companies. But the idea of getting operators involved in determining the location of their visual wear and putting it in place through borders, addresses and possible ID labels for everything that casts a shadow is a liberation because when we do that, we liberate the information that the operator needs. The operator liber- liberates that information and in doing that, he or she liberates their own will. Suddenly, they're in control of their corner of the world. Suddenly, they have begun a journey of self-leadership and a journey of excellence. So it's very interesting. I'll have just a few more things to say about the origins of 5S. I want to talk about the translations of um, Seri Seitan, Seiso, Sekitsu, and Shitsuke. I want to talk about those translations because I'm irritated by them. (laughs) But I have a few things of value to say as well. But, you know, you can't bring a hierarchical model into a society, a random maverick and angry society like our overtly angry society like ours where equality is a demand, <laughs> not an evolution. Oh, boy, did I get pushback when I brought in the Japanese 5S. I mean, on top of it, I was a woman telling grown people men and women to clean up after themselves oh no 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 this did not work <laughs> this did not work I don't know how I ever survived those bruises but I felt there was something there I, I suppose that was the, the inspiration or the curi- it was more than curiosity it was, it was what is it why doesn't this work what can I do to help how can I find a way of getting operators meaningfully involved and hungry for excellence? How can I remove the barriers in the system and find out what needs to be shifted? And that's the nature of doorway one. And so we're going to walk through this and I will share my stories, all of them pretty hard won, and my anecdotes and my My principles and practices. I hope this thus far has been interesting for you, this show today, our our discussion today, because I want you to come back for the next two or three shows and learn more about 5S and see how rich it is and how human it is and how humane and how financially beneficial and culturally transformative this first doorway can be. It has taught me so much. I've been living this doorway for 25 years and fighting it for the first 10. So that's 35 years. So thank you very, very much for joining me today. I always love talking to you and and sharing what I've learned and hopefully hearing back from you. Uh, I want to thank you for listening, uh, taking time in your busy day. And now I'll just say this is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm going to say goodbye for now until the next time. I'm signing off. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.